Hey, Women of the Hour listeners, my faithful friends. I'm just popping in to say that I, that's me, Lena Dunham, in case you forgot, which I'm hoping you didn't because I really have only been off TV for like 13 months, have a new podcast with my genius, closest, dearest, special friend, Alyssa Bennett. Hi. It's called The C Word, and it's all about women who society has deemed crazy. And it's available exclusively on Luminary, a new podcast app, which you can download right now if you want. And it's not free, but I would dare to say it's worth it. Yes. So we have partnered with them to produce the show, which we're so proud of. Working with Luminary allows us to bring the C word to you ad free. And it's part of a lineup of other premium content that you won't hear anywhere else. Shows like Under the Skin with Russell Brand, which Lena was on recently. Guys We Fucked, um, plus an original musical starring Glenn Close, Patti LuPone, and Cynthia Erivo called Anthem Homunculus from the mind of John Cameron Mitchell. So we hope that you enjoy this episode of The C Word and that afterwards you'll go to luminary.link slash Lena to start your free trial. That's luminary.link slash L-E-N-A. You can find the rest of our season there, but for now, here is one of our favorite episodes from this season. A Silky Phantom. 1-800-I-GOTCHA. A friend of men by telephone only. One phone femme fatale. Sweet talker to the stars. Sexy stalker is a porker. It wasn't real. It was just someone with a switchboard and a vivid imagination. This week, we're talking about Miranda Grosvenor. You want to know if I'll survive? Welcome back to The C Word. We are a luminary podcast production. Hello, hello. This is a show where we discuss women whose society deemed mad, sad, or just plain bad. We attempt to untangle who they really were beyond their wild reputations. So basically, we're just going to talk about women who've been called crazy by sifting through the cultural trash heap of history one rumor at a time. I'm celebrity deathmatch star Lena Dunham. And I'm Alyssa Bennett, historian of bad behavior. And we will never call you crazy. Before we get started, we don't claim to know all the facts, folks. We are just passionate students of these interesting women, and we are trying to focus a lens on how and why they achieve such notoriety. This is a discussion about what various people have said about these women over the years. We are not saying that every statement we'll be discussing is necessarily true. We're just like the press. We don't care. So if you hear something that piques your interest, we encourage you to do your own investigation. Our hearts are in the right place, and together we can try and get to the bottom of what has been said about these women over time. Now on to Miranda Grosvenor. Alyssa, what are five things our listeners should know about Miranda Grosvenor? Number one. So Miranda Grosvenor was the woman with the voice. In the 80s, she could and would cold call any male celebrity she liked and charm them all into oblivion. Impressive. Yes. Number two, these weren't one-time phone calls. She formed real relationships that went on for months and even years with some of the biggest names in Hollywood and in the media. And Miranda called this process jacking. Number three... Some of her confirmed phone pals include Johnny Carson, Billy Joel, 
Robert De Niro. Oh, wait, I stole your line. This is you. No, I want this is you. Robert De Niro, Richard Gere, Sting, Art Garfunkel, Paul Schrader, and Quincy Jones. There are also reports she was charming Warren Beatty, Peter Gabriel, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, and dozens more. That's a lot. Billy Joel is quoted as saying, as they say, she did give good phone. God damn. Number four. So she kept her true identity a secret, but she often claimed to be a hot blonde Tulane student with a side in modeling. And all of her power was in her voice. Wow. Number five. So Miranda is not somebody who was called crazy in a malicious way. She was, but she was treated as kind of a kook or a joke or a loon, but she was really just a true bon vivant. But I think things are more complicated than they seem. So what's the real story? How did she pull this off? So for our more youthful listeners, there was a time when people called each other up to talk on their landline telephones. And at this time when, you know, you didn't have cell phones, I was I grew up, I, I was born in the 70s. So you didn't have cell phones, and the only way to kind of communicate with people was on a landline telephone or IRL. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have shit. So it was like a this kind of exciting and thrilling possibility. Your, like, whole teenage relationships would play out over the telephone. You could prank call. You might get a prank call. And sometimes these sort of funny, exciting accidents would happen like I want to sidebar and just tell my own landline story. Can't wait. So it was maybe I'm going to say 1991. And Alyssa Bennett is a teenage raver in Rhode Island. Golden era of raves. And I met this raver named Paul. And I wasn't into him, but there weren't that many ravers in this tiny rural town that I grew up in. So, you know, you take what you can get. So we were kind of friends. And there was this one point when I noticed that he started looking at me or speaking to me in a way that was like not in line with what I believed our relationship to be. But I was like, (laughs) whatever, whatever. It's fine. I was like, it's a little weird. So we started saying these things like he would refer to things that I'd said to him on the telephone. And we did talk on the phone. So I would kind of think like. I don't remember things went that way or what is he referring to? And I just kind of thought he was hitting on me and I was not interested. And you're like, Paul, get a light. I was like, Paul, go back to someone else's dorm and leave me alone. And then one day he was like, he said something about me calling him from the phone at the Wakefield Mall. (laughs) And I was like... Actually, Paul, I did no such thing. And he, he he was like, what do you mean? And he unraveled the story for me that some girl had called him on the dorm line, on the landline at the dorm, and st- initiated this conversation, didn't identify herself. He said, Alyssa, is it you? And this girl was like, yeah, it's Alyssa. And then they proceeded to have phone sex for like a month or two months. And so every time I would see him, he would think that I was the person on the the payphone at the Wakefield Mall who was like, I want to bone you right now. Like, let's no. call it fuck. So, yes. But this was the kind of enchanting mystery that could happen over a landline. I love it so I much. I know, it's cool. I have another crazy landline story. Should I tell it now or yeah. wait for it? Well, this is the scariest thing that ever happened to me. Okay, so I can't wait. So steal yourself. Okay. And you've had some scary shit happen to you. Okay, so I'm like 17 years old. Yep. I've just moved to New York with my two old boyfriend. Oh, I thought you had two old boyfriends. I you... did, but he was the T-O-O type. Yeah, totally. The other one was age-appropriate. 
So I've just moved to New York with my two old boyfriend. I'm like crashing at his apartment, working at the hair salon, stealing petty cash, making it by. And then one day I'm like, I don't want to live with this guy anymore. So somehow I steal enough petty cash to secure an apartment in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. It was 1996. It was fucking cheap. Get the apartment like under cover of night. It was the day actually he was like at work. So I wait for him to go to work. I pack up all my shit into like a Tupperware bin and I moved to Greenpoint. And at this time, if you wanted to find somebody, you just open the white pages and their phone number is listed because no one had a cell phone. So a couple of months later, I get this this message on my answering machine and he's like, Alyssa, it's me. Call me. And I was like, I'm not fucking calling you. So finally, like he's calling me, he's calling me. He leaves this message that's like, you owe me $300. And I was like, What? And that was enough to get me on the phone. So I call him and I was like, what is this nonsense about owing you $300? Yeah. So he gives me this number and he gives me an extension. He says, call it. So I dial the number. I dial the extension. And it's my fucking voice saying, it's Alyssa. Leave me a message and let's be friends. But... I never left that fucking message. So I listened to it one more time. I slammed the phone down and I never talked to him again. But it was so scary. It was Wait. so scary. It was me listening to a recording of my voice that I never made. But it was very fucking scary. And this is all just to pre- preface the story by saying that the phone is a magical, enchanting. The landlines are crazy. West. The landlines are crazy. So Miranda had a landline. And her technique was kind of simple. She would call famous men up on the phone because she had somehow gotten access to a Rolodex. Now, here's a question. Do we think she had access to a celebrity Rolodex or do you think she just had one of those like like weird things you could buy that was like a phone a star book? It must. Some of these guys are obscure, so it must have been a Rolodex. I feel like it was a Rolodex, but the person that could probably really answer that question is... Brian Burroughs, who wrote like the article on Miranda. Most of the information we have is from this article. He kind of wrote the ultimate article on everything that she did. And what he did that was amazing is he managed to really get information about this incredibly elusive person and do an an amazing job of kind of, you know, really honing in on what her exact charm was. And he transmogrified his obsession with her into this incredible piece of, of journalism. So Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian Burroughs. So basically, she would call up famous men, and she'd often pretend she had the wrong number. Introduce herself as a rich, blonde student model, sometimes Southern, sometimes British, with a red convertible. And she would act interested enough in their personal problems that all of them became completely emotionally dependent on her. So I think also let's consider the fact that I mean, I'm not a famous person, but I know a couple. And I think that when you're famous, people are probably, like, not that invested in your personal problems. Well, I've noticed a big Except thing is Except for strangers that like them. Like me. I almost, like, when I go on a date or really do anything with a friend, people forget to ask me any questions. Right. Like, it'll be shocking to me. Like, I remember the first time it happened and the show had been on for two seasons and I went out to lunch with a friend from college I hadn't seen in, like, four years. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we haven't seen each other in four years, so there's so much to catch up on. She did not ask me a single question. And I was like, is she assuming she knows it from the press? Does she think too many people ask me questions and so I don't need to be asked questions like a freaking normal person? Like, what is 
her game. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is that sort of isolating element of fame. So Miranda would get these men on the phone and they would be able to pour their fucking hearts out to her, which was, I imagine, an incredible relief when you have to live your life behind this sort of veneer of your of your fame or your notoriety. Yeah, it's pretty, yes, it's completely real. And so she was charming. She was exciting. She also managed, maybe because she was talking to so many different people, to have very accurate intel on, like, the Hollywood power players. And so, and they also, they loved the sound of her voice, so they would tell her anything she wanted to know to keep them on the phone. Right. So they'd start telling her these really intimate secrets and telling her about their personal lives and their inner wishes and dreams. Also because she would kind of parlay knowledge that she called from other celebrities into she'd she'd transfer this knowledge into other conversations with different men so that she seemed like she was really in the loop. So they felt like she was someone that they could trust. Totally. So it would be like they would call up, say, you know, we're using random names here, you know, Art Garfungal could call up Robert De Niro, two people she can, is confirmed to have spoken to. Art could say, what's going on with Miranda? Is this even real? And Robert De Niro would be like, oh, yeah, I know her. She's the hottest. And right. mutual affirmation of her existence would keep people from feeling like they were just talking to a freaking stranger on the phone, right. which they were. Or I think she would also sometimes just sort of come up in conversation. Like someone would be like... I'm really obsessed with this girl. She calls me on the phone. She's so charming. She's so sexy. And the other guy would be like, oh, Miranda, I'm obsessed with her. And by the way, like really good phone chatter was a skill because back in the day before texting and aiming and all the things, we would talk on the phone for like five hours a night. There was nothing else to do. You could watch one of three TV channels or talk on the phone. Yeah, it's true. For example, one time Buck Henry literally asked Johnny Carson during a commercial break, if he knew Miranda. Well, that's what Buck Henry claims. He says that Miranda basically told him, if you're having any doubts about my identity, then just wait until Tuesday because you're going to find out that I'm real. And he was kind of, you know, flummoxed. And he said, what do you mean? What's on Tuesday? And she says, just wait. You will see. And then on Tuesday, he is on the Johnny Carson show. Hold for results. There was a commercial break and... I think I must have said to Johnny, did you ever hear of a girl named Miranda Grovner? Carson said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was coming down the stairs at 21 in New York, and this long blonde, this girl with long blonde hair, very attractive, uh, came up to me and said, would you give Buck Henry my love if you see him again? Now, I almost fainted. So this story was kind of floating around in industry insider circles in LA, New York, but the rest of us became aware of Miranda in the aforementioned Brian Burroughs profile in 1999. So he was the first one to get many of Miranda's regulars to just talk about her. And he got all these famous people, some of them even in a loving, nostalgic tone, to talk about a stranger who basically scammed them. Yeah. You know, there Brian McNally, who is a restaurateur and own the Odeon. Um, I have an Odeon tattoo on my butt. It's a mistake. It was made while I was using benzos, but... It's there forever now. Yep. There's a quote where he said, you actually started living for these phone calls. She made you feel fantastic. So she was tapping into these very profound personal needs that these strangers had and was able to, you know, kind of foster these relationships where they really needed her, where she was their only outlet and they became dependent on her in all these different kinds of ways. Billy Joel said that at a certain point in his life, she was his only friend. 
friend and he liked to reward her for all of her, you know, good phone action by leaving messages on her answering machine of new material he was working on. One story about Billy Joel that I really like is that, you know, these men obviously at a certain point in their telephone correspondence would say to Miranda, I'd love to meet you or I'd love to see you. What do you look like? And so Billy Joel asked her and she said, Go to the shampoo aisle. I'm the girl in the Clairol box. Such a good line. It's so good. It's such a good line. It's so good. The other thing that I kind of wonder, and I want you to answer this for me, Alyssa, is do you think that she was great at talking like she knew every reference and knew every movie and was an amazing raconteur? Or do you think it was more like she mirrored back at them who they wanted to be and could like talk to them in emotional terms? I think that she knew what they wanted, but I also think that she was an incredible raconteur. And I think that she was able to tap into some sort of deep-seated emotional need, likely because she felt it herself in other ways. This is a guess. I'm not a doctor. But I think that she understood what it meant to kind of feel integrated with another person via conversation and how you could get things from them that you maybe couldn't get in your real life. Something to remember about her, she's very bold. Like she would literally do shit like page men at the airport to make them come running even when she was not there and make and cancel dates with them 1,000 times in a row. But still, she was such a compelling phone presence that she was able to keep these men on the line for years at a time. And I think, you know, there's this other element where I think that for me, when I think about a stranger, a strange, a a woman who's a stranger calling a man and being able to keep him invested in this conversation, for me, I would always assume that there was phone sex going on. But all of these men said that she was never dirty. She never brought it there. So she just kept them on the line with this emotional intimacy that she was able to forge with them. And then she would become pen pals, a lot of these men. So she could send them you know, a blurry photo of a girl in a convertible or a blonde cut out of Vogue and just continue this wild scheme. And they would exchange love letters and send her stuffed animals and flowers. So the craziest part of the story is that so many people didn't figure it out or think that anything was strange about it. They just accepted everything that she said and needed her so badly for whatever reason that they were willing to kind of forego all of their their assumptions that they would meet one day or their desire for her. They just accepted her how she was until... Until enter Buck Henry. So if you don't know who Buck Henry was, he wrote The Graduate, mm-hmm. a classic. But our younger Ever listeners... Ever heard of it? He, you might know him as Liz Lemon's dad on 30 Rock. Never watched it. Well, it's a great show, but it's not why I know who Buck Henry is. I'm not a monster. <laughs> So Buck told Brian Burrow that he was one of Miranda's regulars, but he was always a little skeptical, especially when Miranda sent him one of her magazine cutouts and he recognized that the picture was like, you know, a literally Christy Brinkley type famous blonde person, not, you know, a random Tulane co-ed. But Buck Henry's girlfriend worked for Time magazine and she had all of these connections So he goes to her and he's like, there's something fucking weird up with this Miranda character. I keep hearing about her. She's calling me. You have to help me figure out what's going on. So she has these connections and she passes Miranda's phone number on to an investigator who was able to immediately trace it to this woman in Baton Rouge whose name was Whitney Walton. Then Buck confronted her and she was basically like, you caught me, good for you, but let's keep talking forever because who cares if I'm Whitney or Miranda? I'm still the same sensual presence you've come to know and love. Pretty much agreed. And, you know, when Buck Henry got this information, he would tell people, but 
a lot of these men were basically like, fuck it, because they were getting something from her that they couldn't get from anybody else. Which brings us to the man with the iron mask, Richard Perry. Richard Perry. In 1982, she starts calling record producer Richard Perry using the name Ariana, and he truly fell in love with her. Not just a flirtation. He was like in love. Yeah. So... For anyone who doesn't know who Richard Perry was, he, you know, he was a very successful record producer in the 70s and 80s. He worked with the Pointer Sisters. He worked with Donna Summer, Rod Stewart, Carly Simon. So very well-known, famous guy. I think he's probably still very famous. I saw him just a few years ago because he was literally out on the town on the arm of none other than Jane Fonda. So he knows how to pick up. Right. So here's when things aren't really just fun in telephone games anymore. The reindeer games are done and it's about to get serious. So he was one of the Jacks that would receive these pictures that were cut out of magazines from Miranda, a.k.a. Ariana. And he didn't really think anything was weird that they were cut out from magazines. And I have a story about that, too. So when I was a preteen, I would say, and I didn't have any friends who I felt were cool enough for me. Sorry, Pokey Pitch, you were really cool enough, but I didn't think you were cool enough at the time. You didn't get it. I remember cutting out pictures from like the the street scenes in the back of a sassy magazine and mm-hmm. laminating with them, them with tape so that they approximated the look of a snapshot and mounting them around the mirror in my bedroom. As if those they were a were bunch of snapshots <laughs> of friends, but they were yes. pictures you got from Sassy? <laughs> yes. That is, okay, for the <laughs> listeners who don't really immediately know what Alyssa looks like, she's like cool, hip, and glamorous, and also stories from her past are usually hip and glamorous, so to imagine her doing something yeah. this loserly is so fucking I'm a total loser. Endearing. But, but here's the thing that's interesting about it, is it's not just loserly, because you're not trying to trick other people it's self-delusion yeah and that's so, what's really insane but about it richard perry is also engaging in this th- these kinds of self-delusions yeah. but like in the opposite direction when he accepts these snapshots or these cutouts as like just pictures of his girlfriend i think the real point of it is that there are certain things that we want to believe in right a hundred percent so richard perry was happy to receive these pictures and He only started to figure it out when he was going all about town bragging about how he was in love and he had this hot girlfriend. And, you know, our little canary in the coal mine, Buck Henry, said, oh, you've got to meet Miranda. I'm obsessed with her, too, because liars are so exciting. But Richard Perry. That's true. They are. Sorry, but it's true. I know. So anyway, Buck Henry says this and Richard Richard Perry's like, I'm not believing you. Fuck you, Buck. You just don't want me to be happy. You don't want me to be happy. And so then... He kind of is like pressing Miranda because he's a little bug's been planted in his brain mm-hmm. by that pest Buck Henry. Mm-hmm. And Buck actually call us. And he eventually gets Miranda to confess what she was up to, that her real name's Whitney Walton, and that her greatest pleasure on earth is using hot phone voice to make <laughs> men fall in love with her. Bless. Okay, so I'm going to say that there's two things going on. Yeah. He's so wrapped up in this phone relationship that he doesn't give a fuck. He's saying, like, I don't care what you look like. And then on the other side, he's thinking, like, maybe she's using this as a ploy so that I'm not only in love with her because she's a beautiful, hot, blonde Tulane student who drives around in a red Corvette. So he's kind of still hoping that she is this fantasy. Yeah. But saying to her, I accept you if you're not. Okay, yep, totally. I mean, I think. 
I'm not Richard Perry. No, we can't know. Anymore. But he did say this. This is a real quote for him. She would weave her spell and make you feel closer and closer and closer to her until you're saying to yourself that this is the most extraordinary woman I've ever met in my life. I thought I'm falling in love with her. So in one way, he's hoping that she's this other hot person. And then in the other way, he's probably thinking like, she's so incredible. The lies we tell ourselves. He's like, she's so incredible that I I can probably, I won't care. So he's at emotional war with himself. Yeah, hoping also for he one probably thing. wants to believe he's the kind of guy who could love her if she's obese. Don't we or all want to believe that? We all want to believe that. Yeah. So we, basically, he's like, meet me in New York. Yeah. Let's just figure this out once and for all. And she was like, this is my weirdly my favorite part of the story because it's so crazy. C word. It's so fucking C word. So yeah. she's like, okay. I want to meet you. I'm going to wait in a hotel room for you. Will you consent to wearing a blindfold? And he's like, no, I will not. (laughs) And she's like, okay. So he goes to the room. The shades are drawn. It's very dark. This part gives me the chills. I know. You're like there. Yeah. He opens the door. Yeah. And who's sitting there, Lena? Whitney Walton. And she was like a middle-aged, regular person who had a huge mole on her face. Erase that. (laughs) No, but part of the detail in the article is like... Right. So the article described Whitney Walton as a person who was overweight with a large mole on her face. On her face. (laughs) Which begs the question, what to this author means overweight and what to this author constitutes a large mole? It was big. And Richard Perry was fucking heart... Like, I think he uses this word, heartbroken. Did she not use every opportunity to tell you that she didn't look this way, Richard Perry? Did you not pick up at any point? You're a worldly man who's produced all of... Will you wear the- a blindfold when you come to meet me? Will you wear a blindfold when you come to meet me? She probably tried to make it hot. Yeah, which, by the she way, She tried like, to make it hot. Will you wear a blindfold then just, like, feel the contours of my <laughs> body? We've all been there. So... Yeah. He sees her. She's trying to convince him that their love is for real, that this love is for real. And, and he's, he's like, like, no. And here's the bummer is that he could say, it's not about how you look. It's because you lied to me. I but think it's he about did how say she, that. But it's about how she looks. Well, it's about how she looks. Because he doesn't. No one cares if a hot girl lies to them. No. They're like, that's They like hot. it. They like that's it. They're hot. like, you play with my mind. Whereas right. when like that girl's <laughs> they, with moles lie. He would have been like, you tried to convince me that you were ugly. That was so hot That was so romantic and hot. <laughs> I know. So, whereas if you're actually just like overweight <laughs> with a mole, they're like, you're a liar. <laughs> so she's not fucking hot. She's no. heartbroken. He's like... I can't believe you lied to me. And she probably felt like this is why I only talk on the phone. Because people have been so cunty about this mole my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we paid a small fee and unlocked Whitney Walton's Legacy.com page so that you can see a picture of her and read comments from her loved ones and maybe light a virtual candle for her. Yep. And it was a big deal because they basically they had lapsed the subscription. They lapsed the subscription. I found this page. I was like, Lena, please. And I was and you were like, can baby have the money? And I was like, baby can have the money. Baby got the money. And actually, you guys like opened it up for me. And so then one day I clicked on the link and it's all there probably for like six months. Alyssa's a real sleuth. The other day she was like, let let me see if I can use time warp to open up this page. What's it called? 
it's called the Wayback Machine, and everyone knows about it, Lena. Okay, got it. Never mind. I was like, she's a, she's magic. Okay, so Richard Perry leaves, and he goes over to Art Garfunkel's to cry about it. And Art Garfunkel literally goes, oh, you must mean Miranda. I'm obsessed with her, too. Yeah. So basically, Richard Perry's that, like, loser who's the last one to know. He, even though everyone fucking told him. So I'm then, not saying you're dumb, Richard Perry. I'm saying that many men are dumb. This next part actually ruins me, which is Miranda sent Richard Perry a note that said, you have broken my windows and crashed through all my doors. W. W. You know what this part of this article made me think about? The Brian Burrow article. What? It made me think of a fucking Potemkin village. What is a Potemkin village? It's like when a rich person of, say, the 18th century would be like, I am the lord of this land and my greatest fantasy is to see a small french village from the countryside erected in this russian town and so they would make this village that resembled a, a you know some architectural features of somewhere else and they would put them put them up for the the lord or the lady but it would all be fake so is it like when rich people in la should make fake snow for their kids Yes, that's a Potemkin feature, except this is like ar- a whole architectural. Village. Jesus so Christ. So she is a Potemkin village. She this is, is beautiful. She is like the facade of the thing that these men want, but when you get behind the facade, the what you expect to be inside is not there. That is such an amazing and dark idea. So then in a funny twist, it seems that for a little bit of time, Miranda might have found love again. This time with international playboy and music superhero Quincy Jones. And gossiper. Yeah, and Quincy was savvier than Richard, and apparently he was just expecting Miranda to be, like, a little curvier, so he didn't care that she wasn't Christy Brinkley. And we know this because Richard Perry straight up saw them together at a restaurant, and she was like, don't worry about me. I'm with Quincy now, and we're buying a house in Bel Air. I have an epilogue. Yeah? It didn't happen. (laughs) So, all right. So, Brian Burrow... Like, the follow-through is fucking incredible. So he hears all of these stories, and he becomes so obsessed with Whitney Walton that he manages to find her. So what she is, is, do you guys want to know what yeah. she really is? She's a social worker who works with a Head Start program in Baton Rouge. God's work. Yeah, and also, by the way, the fact that she's a social worker, I'm like, yeah, she's attuned to people. Apparently, she'd also lived in New York in the 60s and would hang out with Bob Dylan, etc., in a Chelsea Hotel-type environment. And then, when she moved to Louisiana, she kept her old black book of famous phone numbers and began calling people after she missed hanging out with celebs. So, there is the mysterious Rolodex. God damn it. And then I think that once she could have one person's number, she could get another person's number. So he finds this woman in Baton Rouge and he ends up talking to a lot of her friends when Whitney Walton was kind of like, I don't want to talk to you for Vanity Fair. Yeah. And so he talks to some of their her buds and like they're like, oh, yeah, her. She has no social life. Mm. She's a bragger. She's always talking about how popular she is on the phone. And on the phone. Also say her favorite was Billy Joel. And that Uptown Girl was probably written about her. You know what? Probably. Because I heard Uptown Girl was about Christy Brinkley. But like. And I think that she, you know, Miranda was an uptown girl. Billy Joel's a love addict. I'll diagnose him right here. He cannot stop falling in love. So 
Brian Burrow approaches Whitney for his articles. She's hostile and uncooperative. Yep. She's kind of like, get the fuck out of my face. I don't want you here. But then she later did give an interview to CBS's 48 Hours where she's pretty relaxed. In which Brian Burrow actually gets Miranda on the phone. Because, guys, she's all about the phone, not about the face. Yeah, she wants to talk. I mean, I did talk to Johnny Carson. You did? Oh, yeah. Was he was he nice? He was nice, but he certainly wasn't the person that was on the television every night. It was very uh, dry and very um, almost shy. But we're not sure if we're getting Miranda or if we're getting Whitney Walton because the voice is, as you, Lena, said, a slow burn. So there's nothing particularly intoxicating about it. It's just it sounds like a lady who lives next door to you. Okay, so when I start researching Miranda via you and you got in and I got in, I was like, the story's incredible. And you, you know, you read a Wikipedia page, you read, you read, read. And so there was some point at the Internet, I guess it was like around the year 2000 when people started. It was announced that HarperCollins had given her a one million dollar advance for a memoir and for an audio book. Naturally. So everyone was like, oh, my God, she's going to tell everything. We're finally going to figure it out. But in 2008, it was mysteriously canceled. There's no follow-up. We've tried. I've looked. Can't get an answer. So I imagine that somewhere there's at least like a book proposal floating around. It had an ISDN number. For ISBN those of you, ISBN number. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> also, by the way, you should know that I have an ISBN number, and I tried to make my book have three different covers, but you can't because then they'll have three different ISBN numbers. I think you mean know. ISDN. <laughs> You're ruining my life. You're ruining- a duck. A duck number. <laughs> You're ruining my life. So wait, you can't have three different covers. <laughs> because then people won't know who's checking out your duck. <laughs> Where okay. am I? So her book was canceled. Dina, our genius producer. An intrepid bitch number intrepid one. Intrepid bitch number one says that it was completed. HarperCollins, do the world a fucking favor and find a way to print this book. Call us. Call so us. So she basically... So her book was canceled. So Dina, so our... Whitney dies. On her Legacy.com page, as we told you, there's just one picture of her in too much makeup. And honestly, the thing that's crazy is like the people... I think a lot about like the people... Her art was this very ephemeral thing, which is it was conversation. Yeah. So it's like she didn't leave anything in this world except for these massive her impressions. Book well, her fucking and her book, book that we're going to get. But also these impressions Robert that she Collins. made on all right. of these men. So I have something that I want to talk about. Okay, great. That came up for me in therapy in that- 2007. Yeah. So my life sucked. Divorced. Twice. And I was so depressed that, like, my bedroom window broke, but I couldn't bring myself to tell the landlord, so I just shoved old clothes in the hole. Like, of course, of course. Yeah, it sucks. My mom's been staying with me the past few days, and she keeps being like, don't you think you should get some spoons? And I'm like, bitch, this is where I live. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it was like that except squalid. Okay. And... I had this refrigerator that came with this apartment that was, like, awful... The light bulb was dead, and it was full of products that were so expired that they didn't even make the brands anymore. Like 800 bottles of milk, and it was so 
horrible that when I would go grocery shopping for food that I wouldn't eat because I was depressed, yeah. I would open it like just enough to throw the whole bag in and yeah. then slam it shut because yeah, I could course. hardly deal with the inside of it. Disgusting, yeah. Disgusting. Looked okay on the outside, disgusting, fetid. Yeah rotting on the inside and so one day I was with my therapist and I start talking about the refrigerator and I start sobbing 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 because I was like that fucking refrigerator is me it's out of control out of control on the inside squall really but you can't smell it because the door's been sealed the door's been sealed and you wouldn't know from looking at it from the outside I wish to god that I had a picture of it now I don't but this is just to say that there is like the schism between how you feel on the inside and how you look on the outside. So like reverse this. I'm not saying that that Whitney Walton was like a festering pile of old meat on the outside, but she wasn't the person on the outside that she felt on the inside. And this was like this for me, it was like a really earth shattering moment to understand like this lapse in my integration of my interiority and my exteriority. And I imagine that she had something similar and that she was able to address it or compensate for it by having these relationships with with famous men. But I think that there is this moment of self-delusion where it's it's comfortable and it's comforting. And Whitney Walton's comfort was on the phone. That is so beautifully said. And Whitney Walton's you know, she wasn't just doing this for entertainment. If you want to be entertained, you can go down to your local billiards club. Like, she was being, an, she was becoming another person. A hundred percent. And like, I think the question is, with these men, do you think that she was being a version of herself? Or do you think that, like, do you think that she allowed parts of herself to be seen and known and that they liked enough of her that she could feel like they liked the real her? I think the parts that these men liked about her were the real her. Yeah. And I think that she knew as we all know, how far you can get with your exterior and how far you can, you know, she she understood that she wouldn't get the same, she wouldn't be able to access that same type of intimacy in a face-to-face meeting. So I think that she gave them these parts of herself that were legitimate yeah. in the way that they would accept them. So before we wrap things up on Whitney and Miranda, Alyssa and I wanted to get an expert's opinion on voices and secret identities. We're really going inside baseball, if you will. Dude, no one knows what that means. This next part isn't even about us. It doesn't matter if we know what it means. To shed a little more insight onto Miranda, we decided to call up a friend who's made quite a career out of hiding her face while showcasing her voice. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about Sia. Can I say what I'm most excited about is that you're so perfect for this episode. You're like, oh, you're like the dream. There couldn't ever be another person. The only one. Uh, I am definitely. I could be considered the c word for because of my passion for dogs and queers. You're also a person who's chosen. Once your career sort of reached this certain like apex of fame and success, you made a decision that you were not going to make your face a part of selling your work anymore, which is fascinating. What (laughs) Can you speak to that decision a little bit, which is the coolest? I mean, a couple of things. Um, I had just gotten sober. I had started to get a little bit famous, and I realized that I found it really dysregulating emotionally and that I was very spongy 
and empathetic. And so if people would run up to me excited or shaking, um, I would be like, hey, it's okay, everybody poops, give them a hug. And then they would leave feeling calm and I would have the shakes. And I just found that I wasn't built for it. And so I decided to retire from the public life and um, and try and become a pop songwriter for other people. And that I that would be how I would try and create an income. And um, and it helped with my sobriety because I was able to stay in one place. And I moved to L.A. and I just went to a lot of meetings and I started writing these pop songs. But I wrote one um, and it was intended for Alicia Keys and uh, that fell through. And then Mary J. Blige sung it. But then David Guetta, he decided he wanted to put my, keep my vocal on it, but he'd actually forgot to tell me that. So he put out <laughs> Titanium. He put out Titanium on um, his record and I heard about it on Twitter and I was like to my managers, wait, um, I'm on a David Guetta record? Like I'm trying to disappear. Like what the, what the fuck? Um, like this is not what I want and I was not a fan of house music either at the time. I was just like, oh, my God, like my credible indie artist like shtick is – is just died in one fell swoop and I was um super bummed and uh but it turns out you can't stay bummed really for very long when a song ends up buying you a house and so yeah, I mean he's got a jet David Guetta's got a straight up jet <laughs> that's amazing so I was like how can I do it and still stay anonymous so I started with I was like I, I guess if Amy Winehouse is the bouffant I'm the blonde bob so I just put a blonde bob on the front of a record cover and then I just went and sang with my back to the audience for the most part and then I put Maddie in that little blonde bob in chandelier which was and people suddenly were like dressing up as you for Halloween yeah. and it was really interesting the thing I wonder is like because like Whitney Walton was able to get all this incredible encouragement for her voice she was also able to completely defy looksism ageism in all of these interactions and something i remember you telling me see is like you were the first woman to get a number one who was older than 40 wow. yeah i know well the wig it that's never crazy. ages and that's what i love about it is the wig I suddenly it never re- ages yeah i realized after i had put maddie in the wig and then I tried putting other people in the wig, but it didn't have the same. It, Maddie had some kind of quality that was just too special. There was something about yeah. maybe we have similar pain or I don't know what it was, but there was something about her. Her She moves like you. She's figured out because she knows you so well. Like She moves like if you were a little girl. It's really interesting. I, I chose her because I felt her pain through her face mm-hmm. when I watched her on Dance Mums. And I was wow. like, I need her. So for those who don't know, we're talking about Maddie Ziegler, who is the dancer in all of Sia's videos. But I didn't realize it was going to turn into this relationship that it has, which is very deep and meaningful and I that I treasure. Um, but I, I also, I tried to put other people in the wig, but it just... It wasn't as engaging. There was something about her that seems to, you know, work. So we we talked about like her becoming an avatar in a sense, and and because the only thing missing from 
pop music at the time was mystery because, you know, everyone was at the gynecologist on Instagram. Um, like, <laughs> check out my veg. Um, Guilty and- as charged. <laughs> I was like, oh, the only thing missing from pop right now is mystery. And I can do that. And that can help me with my sobriety, my serenity. And I can not be famous because I've seen what fame does to my friends. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a curse. It's not a gift. Um, there are some parts that are gifts from it. But truly, truly, nearly everyone I know that's famous it has some kind of physical or mental illness due to it and it's it's just extremely stressful and then I realized that I had done that to Maddie and I was like oh no I made her more famous I did exactly what I had like was trying to avoid for myself now Mm. she was granted she was already a little bit famous but I definitely propelled her to a level of fame and then I started to have these real doubts about that my ethic the ethics of that and we we would talk. She sleeps over once a week, and we would talk. We'd talk about how she was dealing with it, and you know. And she was like, "I'm fine. I'm fine with it." I say, "You know, you tell me if you, whenever you want it to stop, it stops. You can just be a kid. We'll send you to cooking school, you could, or painting school. You, these are the things you like. You want to learn. Like we can just do that." And she was like, "No, I really, I really like working. It makes me happy." And um, and I was like, "Okay, you." Sh- well, just you have to you let you say the word, and if, if you say the word, it stops. And and meanwhile, then she started to get stalkers. So now I provide her with twenty four seven security, and um and I, because I I'm responsible for that. Like I feel responsible, and so um there's just you know the only thing I can do now for her is seeing as I got the benefits of the anonymity. And she gets all the crap parts, like, and I get paid all this money and she gets paid some money. You know, I realized this isn't fair. My only gift to her that I can give her now as my amends is, you know, someone to talk to about how fame is affecting her and if it's affecting her negatively or, you know, just someone to talk to about that. What does it feel like to you when people approach you and probably are, you know, projecting these fantasies onto you, feeling like they know you and saying or thinking about you, um, I know you and I love you. Like when people that you don't know feel like they know you. It's very uncomfortable, but I have, I've reckoned with it and I, it just, um, I practice compassion. Right. Because I, it's not about me, it's about them. It's really about what they need in this moment. This is about a moment that they need and that they need to feel seen or feel um, that they have. It's for them. The moment is for them. And I forget because, you know, now I go to parties and it's all of the people that you see on the television at the party or it's all the people you see at the Grammys that are at the party or like, I don't know, I don't. But when I was a kid, like I met Stevie Wonder when I was 12 and I'll never forget it. Like uh, it was a we met for five seconds and I'll never forget it. I remember every word he said to me and it was literally a story I told like for my entire life until I actually got successful. (laughs) 
like and to me it had been one of the most meaningful interactions of my entire life it was my dinner party conversation once I met Stevie Wonder and you forget that when you're just a normal person who doesn't live in this world we attribute so much uh, status and magic to these artists in the world um, so much and um, and and that that becomes like a kind of magic or a, a currency that we then take into our our, our boring regular lives and use to make ourselves well, I, feel interesting. I always also think that the, there's something in that that's about, I think that there's this mechanism that functions within fandom where the fan is looking to find their idealized self in the other. So, you know, we have celebrities who fans somehow find some relationship to and they think that there's this personal connection often because they see some, you know, discrete similarity. I I would agree. That's why I chose Maddie. I in that moment right. I attuned to the pain in her facial expression on that and she single moment it back at you. Yes. Right. In that one single moment on right. Dance Mums, I saw this pain in her expression and I felt her as a I felt we were one. And the complicated thing is that and I think this this reflects back at this um, Whitney Walton story is that sometimes that connection is really magical for people. Yes. I think especially if you feel isolated by your fame or isolated by your anonymity, that when that, that chasm is, is, bridged and there's some coming togetherness that happens it can be really beautiful can also be really dangerous and caustic as you've you know i think um very eloquently kind of laid out for us yeah and there are times when when it's real meaningful right but more meaningful to me is like yesterday so i like now because i basically had a like a existential crisis about six months ago where i was like what is the meaning of life what is my purpose now i've done everything i ever wanted to do and then i was like who am i i've got no goals who am i who am i and um and i i started to have a lot of suicidal ideation and Mm. and we've now established that it was ptsd related and and Mm -hmm. i'm on medication and i'm doing much better but in order and to- that you were probably using that wanting as medication in a way that the wanting was helping you to repress whatever else was going it, on. Yeah, the performative, uh, mm. you know, the, what I was taught as a child is tap, keep on tap dancing. You know, I went to um, an A-list celebrity's wedding uh, many a, a couple of years ago and I realized and everyone in the room was a, the most A-list celebrity in the world and I realized we have all tap danced the hardest. Every single well, you're one making of us. me feel good about my mediocrity and my lack of ambition. Dude, I'm so happy for you. Like, I literally wrote a song called I'm Raising You to Be Average for a Child If I Ever Have One. My other motto so besides beautiful. a big dick will ruin a guy's life is good enough. Yeah, that's so good. We've all tap danced the hardest. Looking around at a group of the most famous people in the world and going, we've all tap danced the hardest is like so beautiful and tragic rather than looking around and going, we're at the top of our game being like, we've all been so damaged by something that was fed to us in childhood that now here we are. Yep, here we are. Trauma bonding. (laughs) (laughs) Trauma bonding our butts off. And... Whitney. Whitney, our sweet, our Whitney sweet Walton. Whitney Walton. Yeah, I understand why she might have done all of that because the truth is, is actual intimacy face-to-face in the same room as somebody is a real risk. I think that there's also such a 
pleasure as like an uh, anonymous person i there's such a and probably for you too there's such yeah. a pleasure in this idea that you can escape yourself oh totally you know well, that like, you can distance time- yourself from your your own life and be somebody else or be no one in a way Definitely. one of the times that i was like the happiest in my first years of being when like like year 5 of girls we went to tokyo And at that point, because I was on TV at that moment, I was, like, very recognizable when I walked around and stuff. And we went to Tokyo, and I realized no one in Japan watched girls. And I literally went to a department store and hung out for, like, eight hours just, like, going up and down the escalator. Because, like, and then if someone would look at me, I'd be like, oh, my God. And then I'd realize they were just looking at me because I was American. It's it's an interesting dichotomy, like, this difference between being a famous person and wanting to be alone and being a regular person and wanting to find communion somehow. I think that that's a really interesting kind of balance between Lena and Sia, your stories and this Miranda story, like looking for connection, looking for communion through this sort of um, this this reality of who we are, actually not in for me, the falsehood of who I am, because there's a brand and that's capital S Sia. That is who people project onto me, whoever they want me to be. They project onto my songs, whatever their life experience is and whatever they can take from it. But actual me, the person, I also need communion, but I actually need real meaningful contact with people who actually know who I really am, who aren't projecting onto me an idea of who I am or who I might be or who I must be. Yeah, like you become a screen. Yeah, so... Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think like I, I don't use my um, real name at meetings anymore just because it's weird now. <laughs> it's just weird. Well, also, when you don't say your I've been yep. in a lot of different spaces with you. And when you don't use your real name, people almost uniformly don't realize who it is. But then the second you say your name, they start to go like, oh, she's blonde. Wait, she's Australian. Oh, wait. And they start to, like, put the whole thing together. But, like, I was remember when you were at Thanksgiving this year, somebody was like, and what's your job? And you took a long pause. And then in the cutest, quietest voice, you were like, I'm a pop star. <laughs> it was so cute. And at first, they literally thought you were joking. And then they were like, oh, wait, her name's Sia. She did. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sia, and this is a request. And here's the thing. You're allowed to say no, because guess what? Our friendship comes first before this podcast. And I'm a person who's in it for your soul, not for your talent. So but would you, you ever, would you ever <laughs> s- sing one line of an impromptu song that yeah. you write for Miranda? Miranda, Miranda, don't eat too much Panda Express. Oh, Miranda, oh, Miranda, you're a brand of amazingness. There we go. Wow. It's so good. The whole studio's clapping. R.I.P. Whitney Walton. <laughs> R.I.P. Whitney Walton. If Whitney Walton could have lived to hear you sing Miranda, Don't Eat Too Much Panda Wait, we're going to post the song on her legacy.com page. I know. She has a legacy.com page, and this is where it's going. going. <laughs> Sia, I love you so much. I love you I'm going to call you later tonight. Yeah, I love you. Let's FaceTime. FaceTime, yeah. We were talking about this, how it's like a feel-good story in terms of what our other subjects have been. But there is this undercurrent of it that is tragic and depressing and sad, which is that she, 
you know, Whitney Walton could never find the fulfillment that she needed emotionally or romantically. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she had a nice boyfriend at some point. Let's hope. But, you know, that her great pleasure was having these intensely intimate relationships with men on the phone kind of points me in this. I I start to feel about her like she was unfulfilled in some way. I would wish a world in which you could integrate your phone self and your life self. But that made me too normative. Maybe she got off on this. I mean, I, I think I would wish something similar, which was that real life could be exciting enough. I wish for Whitney Walton that real life was exciting enough. God, that's so beautiful. And in closing, would you read this letter from Whitney to Richard Perry during the height of their love affair? Love to. God. On a good day, I feel like a shipwrecked person spotting the sight of some nearing shore, a taste in the wind, a softness in the light, a sudden passage of words. Love is so easy in the movies. No conflicts are too hopeless to resolve, no obstacles too painful to overcome, no resolutions too final for last-minute reconsideration. Love means forever in the movies, not to worry. What was ignited when I loved you continues to burn. It's kind of good. She's a good writer. I'm Lena Dunham. I'm Alyssa Bennett. We will never call you crazy. The C Word is a Luminary Media podcast. It's produced by Pineapple Street Media and Good Thing Going Productions. Our producers are Dina Kleiner and Liz Watson. Diane Hodson is our associate producer. Jenna Weisberman and Max Linsky are our executive producers. Our theme song is by Liz Fair. Other music is by Matthew McLaughlin and Andrew Miller. Special thanks to Ruby Schwartz, Michael Cohen, Soham Joglakar, and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>